Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my friend Richard Harris. And today we are talking to Alex Boyd, CEO of Revenue Zen based in Portland, Oregon. And uh, excited to get into some conversation with him and learn about his journey into sales and, uh, and into entrepreneurship. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Richard. Happy to be here. Cool. So for context, why don't you give everybody some background on what you're up to right now and what Revenue Zen is, is all about and what's the sales cycle like and the, you know, the price point and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the kind of nitty gritty of what we're doing today is we're acting as the, the demand gen team, the lead gen team, basically flooding AEs with SQLs as much as we can. Um, uh, our sales cycle is interesting. We're, we get a lot of our, our business from inbound, from my LinkedIn posts, from uh, word of mouth as well. Um, uh, it's like a question, sales cycle wise, we're in between like a couple weeks to a couple months usually. It's pretty short and then people generally pay us between 30 and 250K a year in that range. Um, usually on the lower to start, usually on the latter, you know, when they're getting in the swing of things. But uh, yeah, it's us. We got 21 clients and growing slow, but happy that way. Yeah. <clears throat> so how big are you guys? We are 11 people and I have a job rack out for one, maybe two more. So when did you know that you wanted to start your own company? Were you like a young entrepreneur um, or did this kind of happen over time and more gradual? Yeah, um, I remember when I was, I had a weird journey into sales um, and into all this. And so um, I remember when I was in college, I was studying moral philosophy. And I was like, well, I could either become a professor in philosophy or I could figure out what the hell to do with this degree. Um, and I was like, well, I don't want my income to become linear and just sort of do a job job. So what the hell do I do? Um, so I took two or three nights a week instead of partying to um, sit in front of my computer, learn a form of JavaScript and code up uh, Forex trading algorithms. It did pretty well. And at the end of college, I was like, well, I'm gonna apply to a hedge fund now. And I'm gonna be on the quantitative trading desk of a hedge fund. They didn't want me in a PhD in astrophysics. Um, so I landed at a brokerage firm. And I did this by compiling a list of college alumni in, in finance and trying to find the closest place to a hedge fund to get an intro. I didn't realize this was the first form, this first cold call list I ever built. Um, the fifth guy uh, was like, yeah, I'll talk to you, sure, sounds good. Um, yeah, the, the broker firm I used to work at has some positions open. Uh, they have you know, research and client services and sales. And I was like, oh, research sounds good. I like research. Um, I'm a quantitative guy. I'm kind of introverted and shy. Um, and he goes, yeah, it's true. If you're, if you're in sales, you really got to be a closer. And I was like, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not me. No, 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 no. Um, so I get to the interview, and of course, they're like, well, we have a sales broker position open. I was like, ah, shit. So it, apparently in the interview, the, the line that won the day, my, my then manager would later tell me is, um, he said, how does a philosophy degree help you sell? And I said, philosophy is kind of just selling ideas. This seems like just not a product. And he did that. And apparently he was fighting back glee at my intelligent response of how I had just taken that concept and sold the idea of me in, in sort of a neat little package. Um, and uh, 
you know, I still had this idea that I would just trade my own account and build it up so much that in the next 10 years, I just quit my job and live on the beach, right? Um, so the entrepreneurship instinct had this, this origins in extreme laziness. Um, but the first time I got the bonus structure in front of me, I was like, wait, if I get rep of the month, the top rep, you pay me what? And if I hit my goals, you pay me again? There's, there's bonuses? Wait, my income is tied to how much I work? This changes everything. So then I started to obviously change my perspective. And, you know, three months in, I was like, well, I'm an introvert, but I'm just going to science the shit out of this. And three months later, I was top of the board and my, my two managers had to sit me down and the, the, the cool one went, um, hey, Alex, um, uh, look, you're doing real well. We're happy for you. But you're being a dick about it. And I was like, yeah, you, you're right. I am. And I realized I was being kind of an asshole. Um, so, you know. I, what were you doing? What were you doing to be an asshole? Like, what, was, what was that? I was gloating about how good I was. And it was such a piece of shit thing to do. And I was 22 and just insufferable. God, I sucked so 22 much. year old, insufferable, successful philosophy major salesperson. Terrible. So, I've met a few of you before. Pie and a, and, a, and a blazer in San Francisco, you know, pocket square and the cufflinks every day. I bought the nice watches. I tried to da 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 and all that stupid stuff. Um, so, you know, a year and a half in, I was like, all right, it's time for promotion. I really want to do more. I was just constantly like, what more can I do? I tried for institutional sales. I wasn't buttoned up enough. I tried for, for um, uh, channel sales, their version of channel sales. We uh, didn't have an open. I want management. I didn't fit in the corporate world. So I was like, all right, this is, this sucks. Um, so uh, me and some other friends basically kind of staged an exodus and uh, left. Um, and uh, I called a recruiter. I called actually it was it was Betts actually. I just first recruiter came to came up on Google search, and I was like, I didn't have any financial sales roles. And they're like, no. I was like, well, what about tech? Like, we have plenty of that. Come come look. And so. Um, Shortly thereafter, I landed at Indonero, um, which was at the time this kind of Silicon Valley star company growing super fast. and FinTech company, by the way. Yeah, basically, right? Um, so I'm, I want to I pause you for a second. Talk to me about how you staged this walkout. What did that look like? Oh, God. Um, uh, I wonder how much I can say. Uh, so we, there, there was a pay to quit program at the time. Um, Okay, which they like, quit. Yeah, they did. Um, like the, the Zappos kind of model where you go through training and then they offer you a thousand bucks at the end of the week or the month or whatever just to quit, right? In the, exactly. In this case, it was called Your Choice and it was 5,000 um, bucks. And then there was another thing where like we were traveling and we hadn't been paid for it and we realized that and I had been like pulling tons of travel to go like to events and seminar stuff where I'd like go and give a speech and clean up accounts and then fly back the next day and get there, but go up like 4 a.m. to midnight. And so we were like, all right, you owe us this and you owe us the pay to quit bonus. And then, yeah, I walk in one day at 11 a.m. Uh, with plain clothes and they're like, all right, sit down, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I explained how much of, a, of a, an ass I had been the whole two and a half years there. And this wasn't much better. I don't think I burned too many bridges, but I think I burned some, but I, I did learn my lesson a little bit about not to do that. But on the, on the other hand, I'll defend you. 
they let you get away with it for two and a half years because you produced. So to some extent, they do own a little bit of this responsibility for creating the monster. Oh, tons. Yeah, absolutely. My sales manager would, would pound his chest. He would ask you how much you could bench. Um, and then he would swear all the time. And then he would say, don't say dude on the desk. It's unprofessional. And he'd be like, you're kidding me with this shit. You're kidding me. Don't say dude on the desk. Yeah, right. God, and if we were ever spending time writing emails, I would get tons of business from writing really good emails. And he would be like, the floor is too silent. I'd be like, I'm, I'm doing business. I'm just communicating the way that this guy wants to be communicated with. How long, how long ago was this? What, what, year, what years are we talking about here? Because there, there, was a, there was a time, you know, Richard and I are old enough to remember where, um, you know, you weren't really getting through to people over email. That was certainly not one of the preferred modes of communication channels. So. I'm just curious for context, like how long ago are we talking? Because I think that that type of feedback now would be really strange and, and hopefully kind of rare to be in existence still in a, in a you know, call center inside sales floor kind of environment. This would have been 2012 through 2014-ish. Yeah, I guess 2015 is when I left. Six, six to eight years ago or so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then, so, uh, and then, so you, you, when you got to be a director at at Indonero, you know, I think you, we've talked about this before, but we and we worked with some of the same people. Like, you got to see some of the inner workings of how a startup is is run, and the do's and the don'ts, and that kind of thing. How how much has that helped you in your entrepreneurial journey with Revenue Zen? It's it's everything. Um, it's, it's odd. I didn't actually, um, I felt like I didn't really learn much more. Like nobody taught me. Um, and I think it's part of how I really developed the entrepreneurial skill set is, um, the way it happened was I was one of the top AEs out of, out of four or so. One was wanted to take over account management. One wanted to go to New York and build channel sales there. Um, one guy was leaving to do a startup and I was like, okay, so I need to build this now. And, and Jessica Ma said, yep, here's your $20 million goal. We did, you know, almost five last year. And I was like, okay. So, She's like, so where, did, where, did you, where did you go to, to learn what to do next? I think this is a pretty common situation. You know, sales manager, director type person, and they're given no, no coaching, no guidance, no mentoring. Just like, hey, here's your massive goal that will get us to our next round of, of fundraising go figure it out. So where do you, where did you go at the time to go figure it out? I didn't have anything. Um, I went to Portland. I went from San Francisco to Portland and just like, there was no MSP that I knew of at the time that I didn't know about Saster. I didn't know about any of this stuff. I mean, I, I, I was on some mailing list, but like there was no coaching. She, um, I just said, I can, I can do this. Just help me recruit these 20 reps that you need, half AEs, half SDRs. Um, Who did you say help me recruit to? Oh, um, just like the HR team just said, you know, like uh, send me some candidates. And we had, we had some recruiting firms. We had bets and on DMO. So you were, so you were literally just like, just give me the bodies and I'm going to try to do something, but I have no idea what I'm going to do. More. I mean, it was like, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I knew it was working for me. I was like, I know how to do this. I've closed 180 deals. 
I just going to repeat this process. That was that at the time. That's how I thought about it. Um, and but no one said it otherwise. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to do what I've done, but then teach everyone else to do it. Um, so right or wrong, that's how that's how it happened. Um, and I would just stay late every night doing um, the what was like the pre-screen was a role play call for AEs and it was the yoga pitch. Um, I was a, a yoga studio. Well, I was a student, and they were a yoga studio owner. They got like a doc in advance explaining the scenario, and they would call me. And I, I had filled out a form. They'd have to sort of like gauge my interest in yoga and get me into a class. Right? That was that was the pitch. It was a predefined standard. No one can kind of like have existing knowledge of it. Um, that's how I tested everyone. So I hired 10 AEs out of like 250 who were the best of the best on these calls. Um, and that's just the way that I decided I was going to do it. Um, so how did you how did you do, how did you benchmark? 10 out of 250. I mean, that's a lot. Like I, and, and I don't, you know, I'm asking based on your sort of philosophical background and sort of this data approach that it seems like you take to things. Um, because I think a lot of people hire and they don't know how to do a rubric and I don't know if that's what you did or they don't know how to sort of measure this. So yeah. for you, what were, what were the highlights of those 10 that you really thought were great? It, it, it's interesting because, um, I'm very data-driven, but I'm also very emotional. Um, for me, it was about how I felt in close when I was in it, and then how they took rejection. I would never say yes. And I wanted to know how did they make me feel not knowing me, with no face to put to the name, just a phone call. Could they, could they warm me up, get me talking, when I was kind of stonewalling them, right? Um, and then when I said, I'll think about it, and I would not say yes, did they get defensive? Did they take rejection well? How did they handle that? Did they express that? Did they put that on me? Did they blame me as the prospect? Right? And I, I, it was all about the emotional experience of, of, of being with them. I didn't give them any assessments, uh, really. I, I just gave them feedback. When the call was done, I would say, okay, great, good job. I'll give you some feedback now. And if they, how did they take feedback? Were they coachable? Um, so it was all these, uh, it, it was a conversation. It was all about, um, did I, could I picture myself as the prospect, as the nervous founder buying accounting and tax services? Would I, be, would I feel at ease with this person? Um, and then could, they, could I coach them, right? If I was gonna teach them how to be a badass at selling financial services to startups, were they gonna take coaching? Or were they gonna just say, I know my, my are the highway, right? Um, so I just tested them on those three things. I never said yes to any of their pitches to see how they'd take rejection. And, did the best I could. Again, no one taught me, so I didn't know if I needed a rubric. I just, just out of curiosity, going back and looking at those ten, how many of those ten were successful? Do you think? Um, so, so the way it happened is the last two, basically. Well, there was there was roughly twelve. The last two, I was like, we shouldn't keep hiring. This is too many. Um, and I hired two additional beyond what we should have. Basically, the last two, more or less, failed out. Um. Everybody else hit quota. Um, yeah, thinking back, basically everybody else hit, hit quota. So you, so you went 10 for 12 on your first round of hiring as a, as a first-time sales leader. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were pips. Nobody was perfect, but, like, the, the, we doubled the that, revenue. We closed I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a ratio that is uncommon. That, yeah, I'm, I'm doubling down on this to tell you that, Alex, that is amazing. And if you haven't proselytized that and written the book on how you interviewed, people would eat it up, dude. Like that's every, every phenomenal. Sales, every sales leader or founder who's looking to hire in sales would love to go 10 for 12. 
Uh, there's, I can't. I'd love to go four I'm, for twelve. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, yeah. so uh, I always thought that it was, it was, it was. I felt so bad that we ended up hiring those last two people that I was like, they're gonna, they don't have enough leads. They're gonna fail. The partnership in which we work isn't enough. They're not gonna get it. And when one of them failed out, I was like, I, I freaking you know, knew it. God, I felt so terrible about it. So really, really interesting topic that you potentially just hit on for us that we have not covered before. And I was just having this conversation. And I realize there's a lot of variables, but I want to get your take and your thoughts. You said that you felt bad because there was, quote, you know, not enough leads for this person to be successful. In your mind, what's the, re the, what's the right account to rep ratio? How many accounts, quote unquote, leads can one account executive hold and handle and be successful? Is it, is it 50? Is it 100? Is it 500? And, you know, I think we both agree the answer is yes to this, but like there's difference between the type of sale and the, and the environment and the ticket on these things. Give me some of your thoughts <clears throat> around that account to rep ratio. I have very strong opinions here. Um, and I've been in a lot of different environments. So, so to preface this, um, this was not a fortune 500 sale. This was deal sizes between you know, 10 to 50, there was one big one that was 200K. These were small deals, right? Um, the way I thought about it was I needed to, I had a, my, my, my Salesforce fed into my Google Sheets dashboard and I, I looked at their calendars and I would want to make sure that it was, for me, it wasn't about accounts to rep. It was about how many demos a day will make them burn out and keeping them under that. So I was always trying to keep them be above not busy enough and below burnout. And if I kept them there, it was a matter of if we're getting, if I, if I forecast getting to burnout, I hire a rep, right? Or whatever number gets me to that point. But I wanted everyone to have between four and five and a half demos a day on average, but not six or seven. Cause I knew that for me, six demos a day was going to just kick my ass and I would, I would, I would burn out it would look three or fewer demos a day. Uh, and I say demos just discos, but, um, three or fewer and I would have enough to do. Um, so we tried to keep that balance in that, in that range at the time, at the, t at the time. Yeah. And, and, and what about, do you get pushback on that? I mean, what I find is that a AEs always want, they want all the leads, all of them. I can handle all of them. I can handle 500. I can handle a thousand. I can handle 5,000. Right. Well, and as you grow, one of the hardest things I think for sales organizations to do as you grow is to find a way to fairly and amicably start to shrink people's territory in a, in a way that makes sense for the company, but also keeps reps in a position of strength and, um, you know, satisfied they can hit their numbers. They feel like they're contributing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you guys maybe are not at that, that point at revenues end, but, you were at that place previously, potentially with, with Indonero, or maybe you're about to go through that with revenues in. What advice would you give people who are, you know, heading down that path, right? And you're, and you're going to have to make some of those tough choices. Yeah, um, I've seen a tons with our, you know, we've helped 80 plus clients now. So, I mean, even if it's not us, I see it with, with them. Um, and I think when pe people often do make the mistake of, uh, Amy Villas had a great post in this where like you take the top rep who's crushing it and you just shrink their territory until they get pissed and leave. That's one side of that. And that's just a bad idea. Um, that's not to say you should just do the converse and have it be a good idea. Cause that's not, neither is that the case. You shouldn't simply 
enrich the one rep who gets lucky with the best territory, right? So we have to understand, is it a matter of, you know, you're selling um, financial services software to New York City or Kansas, right? There's an obvious, like, is your territory befitting what you're doing? And then there's, what is the rep doing, right? Are there, are there metrics showing us that they're a good rep or that they have a good territory? Um, uh, I hate the idea of squeezing out the, the top performers in the name of sort of quote unquote fairness. Um, and this happened to me when I was at Indonero where the, I didn't have the, I was still sort of in my prior company, like uh, too much of a chip in my shoulder mode. And I didn't have a great relationship with the head of BD who had this great partnership built with WeWork. Um, and so I was building my SDR team just to, to plug more leads into my inside team's uh, calendars basically. Um, and then when the New York team would, would say, hey, I'm not getting enough WeWork leads, let me get some of those SDR leads, I had a little, little red hen moment where I was like, oh, now you need the SDR leads. That's what I thought. Look, see, they need the SDR leads too. And so um, I always try to think about, can we just, that was a bad idea. How do we just fill everybody's time enough that they're all just full and we're grading them on similar things? Um, and this was... Um, I don't know. I mean, the, even the concept of territories, I, I resisted a bit because the New York people, if we had extra leads that yeah. we couldn't, if they were, the rep was in New York and the lead was in Florida, I'd be like, I don't care. Give them the Florida lead. They're available to take the call. So yeah. what they're in the, they could just go on their laptop, take the call. It's interesting. Uh, I, I avoid, I've avoided territories as long as possible everywhere, yeah. everywhere I go. But they, it does start to feel like in, an inevitability the larger you get. And especially if there are, you know, in, in my last job, um, there were very specific differences in the rules and regulations of how <clears throat> title companies worked and the way the product worked in different areas. And so it just started to to make sense. But I, I tend to agree with you that, um, you know, I try to hold off on, on territories as, as long as possible, you know. Yeah, you're right. It seems like... Um... Uh, like a thing I would do almost with resignation if I needed to make the operations work more smoothly and I just had to have a way to make things fair or if I needed broker regs or whatever it was. Um, but I wouldn't unless I had a compelling reason to. That, that is the default makes me very sad. It shouldn't be the default. Oh, we need territories now. Like avoid that. Um, avoid defaults in general, but definitely avoid that. Yeah. When you, um, when you went about trying to get your first customers and defining your your uh your icp at revenues then was that a was that a hard process for you did it come relatively easily and what and what did you do and i'm thinking now as somebody who's advising super early stage startups who you know are really trying to find like they maybe they just barely found product market fit or they haven't even found it at all yet and they're trying to figure that out like what, what was your process of trying to figure out, okay, this is the type of customer that I want. And, and how did you go about structuring a sales process for, for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, well, it, it sort of happened where once I left, I just sort of began consulting and then a few friends were like, you're a free agent. Let's, you know, let's help, right? Help us out. And I was just like, sure. Yes to everybody. Right. And everyone does that. They try to help everybody. That was no exception. Um, so our first two clients, the, the first client has recently been acquired at a ridiculous multiple. I don't know how much I had to do with that. Some, but not that much, but it was, it was good for them. It was just like, that's really cool. Um, and I basically spent a third of my time with them 
for a, a rate that paid like two thirds of my bills. And I was like, all right, great. I'll find one more. And like, then we'll see what to do after that. The second client was just a random referral from an awesome tech company whose uncle ran a manufacturer in New Jersey. Literally they, they manufactured and rehab and kitted things for big electronics. And I was like, I don't know how to do that, but sure. It's B2B, right? So we kind of made it work, um, but their culture was very different than what I was used to. They missed a meeting that we had set up with Amazon. And we were like, you, mi you missed the meeting. Not we, but you missed, not Amazon didn't, sh they showed up and you didn't, okay. So sooner or later I was like, okay, the ICP is, it gets more important. And we had to strike this balance of like, we're bootstrapped. I can't afford to not take on hungry people who want to work with us that I think I can help, but as much as I could afford it, I wouldn't do that. Um, so we simply asked ourselves, um, given our financial situation, um, can I afford to say no to this, this company? Um, and then there was the balance of like, well, even if they're not ICP, can we still, or sort of so-called ICP, can we still help them? So, there, um, so, so I feel like I'm reading between the lines, <clears throat> I'm hearing you say, there might be times when taking bad money or bad customers makes sense. Do you agree with that sentence? I, I do, yeah. I think, I, I very much think we should operate but, in the, in the give, 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 give some examples of, of when bad money might actually be good. Well, so it's, I really want to think not in terms of good and bad, but in terms of there's such a spectrum, right? There's like, this is the premium tier one customer. That's, it is not the case that everyone else is bad. There's like the tier ones, there's the sort of pretty good and the ABCD model. Everyone knows that like some customers just absolutely will fail and you, you can't take those. Um, but the ones that are like, Hey, this is sort of new for us. It's new for you. We don't know. We know that this will work, but like we have budget and we think this will work. You're like, yeah, let's try it. Just set expectations. If you're going to take that money, set expectations. But, do you, but Alex, do you also think too that early on in an organization, sometimes you take the money because you need a logo, you need one more referenceable customer. You know, there are deals you're going to do the first year or two that you'll never make again just because you're in the first year or two, right? Um, that's sort of how I see good versus bad. It's like there's times where I'm like, okay, I'll do this for X. And it's not as good a money and maybe the client's a little bit more of a pain. Um, none of my present clients for any who are listening, but um, you know, uh, but I do it because it's, it's good. It's motivation for me. It keeps me hungry. It keeps me going and it pays the bills and does something to let me get to the next bigger client and it becomes a reference. So did you see yourself doing a lot, any of that? I would, I would, in the early days, I would do anything where I thought it was above an acceptable ROI, right? So for us doing lead gen and marketing, it was like, well, if I can get, if I think we can get above, you know, a certain ROI, even if it's not as much as I'd want, I would do it um, for the same reason, right? We wanted to learn. It might help them a ton. Um, and we had people we thought would be bad fits that came on and had great results. And I was like, well, I guess I don't know what a bad fit really is, do I? Um, and so I, I tried to introduce chaos to actually learn. Um, and sometimes if you just stick to what you think, you know, as the ICP, you'll miss out on pivot opportunities on things you could be doing better on people who could teach. Um, there, there are, uh, absolutely techniques in financial services that tech people should know. Uh, there are things that B2B lead gen teams do very well that people in mortgages have no idea about. And if you hadn't introduced that cross-pollination, for every product it's different, but um, you may be missing out. So if you're that early and you don't know your product market fit, I would say 
is there a case, ask yourself if there's a case to try new things for the simple reason that if it could be a good fit and you want to learn, tell them it's new. Don't, don't act like you're super confident for the prospect and be like, yeah, we do this all day. But if they're down to try it too, and it's good money, like try it. Why not? Have yeah. fun. <laughs> I love this philosophical approach that you bring. It's, it's a very, it, it's rational and makes sense. And I think I think that way sometimes, but I'm never quite so deeply thoughtful about it. So I'm really enjoying how you explain your thought processes. Maybe well, philosophy did actually help sales after all, and it wasn't just selling ideas. Oh, for sure it did. <clears throat> for sure it did. I mean, I, I studied psychology. In a heartbeat. Yeah, I studied psychology and, and got a minor in religious studies. And religious studies is very similar in a lot of ways to, to philosophy. And mm-hmm. I have found at least that sales, salespeople as creatures tend to be highly emotional more than completely logical. And so there are, there are many, many cases, Alex being one of them, where uh, somebody who's, you know, maybe a little more skewed logically, even though they have emotional responses as well, it kind of gives you a, a little bit of an advantage, right? A little, a little bit of a, a head start that makes you a little bit, a little bit stronger. You can take some of the emotion out of the way and think about things a little more, a little more critically. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. And this is, this is a fantastic use of an otherwise worthless liberal arts degree. You know, you could go back and tell your, <clears throat> your parents and every, and everybody like, ah, I ended up making something out of my, you know, philosophy degree, my art history major, all this kind of stuff. Right. You, uh, I want to change gears and, and, and talk a little bit about your content marketing approach and strategy. And you have, um, you kind of eat your own dog food. I mean, you preach it to your, your, uh, your clients, I know, and, and you're very active on, on LinkedIn. I think I even saw a comment or a post from you recently where you talked about how a large chunk of your business comes specifically from your efforts and the things that you put out there. So how, how do you think about your content marketing and your, your branding, um, you know, from a, from a funnel perspective? Yeah, it's, it's been crazy. Um, cause at the, at in the narrow, I took over the SDR team reluctantly, right? I was not the demanding guy I was like, I manage AEs and this is what I do. And, um, the, the exec team was like, you got to get back in there. The team is struggling. And I was like, ah, but fine. And now I'm like, I'm a marketer. And I had this moment a few months ago with Amy Volas where, where um, I was on a call with her and I was like, I don't know how to rebrand myself as a marketer. I, I, this is what we're doing, but like I'm, I'm this like salesperson. She was like, you're a badass marketer and say it to me. And I was like, you're a badass marketer. It was very funny. It was very supportive. Um, but I was literally just like, oh God, thank you. Is there um, a video? Is there, please tell I, me there's a video. I wish. I we, I, I, we'll have to get Amy to recreate that with you. You should ask her. It was very funny. She's so supportive and I love it. Um, but uh, it was an odd journey because I left Indonero and I was like, okay, I don't work for a company anymore. I can just say what I want. Um, now, whether I could say what I want before is another story. I probably could have, but the point was that's how I felt. Um, and um, our first sort of big client that paid us 200 grand a year and had a fantastic case study and loved us. I went back and sure enough, they were like, I saw your LinkedIn post in the email. It's just clear as day. Um, 200, 200, 200 K deal based off a LinkedIn post, everybody. I just want you to hear that because there was, there was a whole thread the other day where somebody was basically questioning whether it was worth it, 
for account executives, uh, you know, to work on their brand and to post content? Was there actually an ROI? And to my shock and horror, there were people who were saying, no, it's not worth it and they shouldn't be doing it. And I was losing my shit going, you gotta be fucking kidding me, right? Perfect example Alex talking about right here. I just had this conversation, not kidding, an hour ago. I'm at the AAISP and some people are talking about, well, you know, should we teach our sales reps how to do some stuff on LinkedIn? I'm like, oh, Jesus, if I've really got to explain that to you, I don't know what to yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest one, I, a client of ours closed a half a million dollar deal from LinkedIn. Um, uh, and yeah, it's like, I, I'm... I myself am, am almost at a million of, of LinkedIn sourced revenue at this point. Um, it, it influences quite a bit of what we do and it directly sources a, a, another quite a bit. I save screenshots all the time. People will just DM me and be like, I really, I've been following you for a while. I find your, your approach to this refreshing and insightful. Now here's the thing people don't get. I track the, going to the data side, I track the win rates on different sources. What do you think the difference in the win rate is on LinkedIn sourced opportunities versus non-LinkedIn sourced opportunities? Oh, it's got to be a huge delta, much, more, much, much higher. Yeah. Two and a half times. Yeah. Hopefully, oh my God, all, the, all these teams are just like, yeah, just send more cold emails, do more cold calls. And I'm like, yeah, sure. That may create more lead, more, more noise, but is it creating more cash? I'm a bootstrap. So, so how, 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 how should a company consider adjusting their, their marketing budget and spend, right? If, if you're able to get that kind of ROI from LinkedIn and from content creation, does that mean you can pull money away from other marketing uh, channels? You don't need as much? All this shit is free right now, right? So, well, so it takes time. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start by saying something that I think will annoy a lot of people out there, which is, um, there is an identity attached to outbound. There is a masculine identity attached to outbound. You are more of a salesman if you make more cold calls because you go out and hunt, right? Versus sort of doing things that create magnetism. I find this all the time where people are just like, you know, boom, boom, more cold calls. I've, I've made tens of thousands of cold calls. I have no fear of it. But it's, take that stuff out of it, right? Look at what's really creating profit. Right. If you only managed to the, um, the things that you're comfortable with and you don't take the time like I did to just learn about my co-founder, Amanda, taught me tons about SEO. We get a, a ton. Of, I closed an SEO source deal today. Uh, I'm in charge of a website's SEO right now. Works great. We're just climbing again and again. I write LinkedIn once a week. I barely have time. That brings in about a third of our revenue. Uh, we do barely any outbound for ourselves. Um, how should people think about it? Um, they, should, they should question everything they know about what the SDR role was over the last several years. Not ditch it necessarily, but consider it, reflect on it, question it. Um, philosophize. Philosophize. Look at, I'm gonna call out Sarah Brazier at Gong. She's an SDR and she does freaking awesome work on LinkedIn. Go you, go you, she's an SDR. She pull, probably pulls in tons of business from that stuff. Um, most salespeople don't know how to do that. Um, that do. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's wild to me that Richard is at AISP conference and people are debating whether or not their sales reps should be taught this kind of approach. I mean, the answer has got to be unequivocally yes. You know, it, it's got to be yes. You, you, you mentioned, you know, Sarah and, you know, I don't know who she's paying attention to over there, but there's 
a dozen or more people at Gong that I know and respect who use LinkedIn in a way that um, is pretty powerful. So she's got mentors in and around her organization to help her with that. Um, yeah. And what a, what a mess if you go to a sales org that is not teaching you any of that stuff whatsoever, in my opinion. Luckily, you can find mentors and, and, and teachers, if you will, outside of your organization just by following and connecting with the right people on LinkedIn who can teach you that kind of strategy. But it, it's, it should be absolutely supported and endorsed and, and, and trained upon in sales organizations, um, you know, in, in my opinion. And I think my opinion is, is shared by most people who are kind of at the forefront of this stuff, you know, right now. I totally agree. I think we're going to have to edit this part out because I'm afraid that everybody's going to take Alex's advice and they're going to create more shitty noise on LinkedIn because they don't know how to write an engaging and thoughtful post because they haven't philosophized enough over their navel about it. So we may have to edit out some of this or maybe we'll just bleep out certain parts about here's the top secret bleep. That's a great idea, Alex. <laughs> we'll yeah. have to figure out something. Well, maybe, maybe we should cut some people who are newer to the platform a little bit of slack. You know, we, we, hold, we hold such high standards for people. Like, I can tell you right now, when I first started posting regularly on LinkedIn, half of what I wrote was probably total trash, total, total shit. I, I didn't know what, what I was doing. I, I start, then I started following people and seeing a little bit of what they did, and, and, and I adjusted. But <clears throat> the act of writing for me was confidence building and cathartic. And it was like, Oh, this is trial and error. And like, I don't have very many connections right now. So no one's going to fucking see this. So who cares if I, if I screw up, you know, we're so quick to jump on people now as a community of like some junior level person writes this, like, you know, LinkedIn post that I don't know is not actionable enough or, right, has the wrong formatting or like grammatically incorrect, whatever the reasons are people get jumped on, like, man, let's cut some people a little bit of a slack, a little bit of slack there. That's different to me than practitioners who have been in the business for a while and they start espousing advice, follow me, do these particular things and it will work. I've had this conversation a lot. It's like, I wanna read some of these posts that are advice driven and I want a group of people to go test this methodology that somebody's talking about. And then I want to know the results. And, and that, that would be very, very interesting uh, to me to see. And, and, and that, I think, would help the community as well understand, you know, what's, what's legit and, and maybe what's noise. That's true. I, I think we should just, um, the people who are, who want to be self-reflective, who want to be more self-aware, who want to get their access to therapy when they need to do that to build these skills, uh, they should reflect on what they're... This morning, I had a client's rep send me their first post. And I was like, my first reaction was like, oh, that's not good. But like, you're in the right direction. It was, it was kind of self-promotional. But you could tell he had taken some of my advice. I did a big session with their team. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to push you on these ideas, right? Um, I'm going to push you on the thing you said here, your analogy here, uh, you go in a different direction here. Why, why, why can you justify this? And I was just felt like philosophy class, right? Where I was just trying to poke holes and get him to pre-refine his stuff before it even got to me. Um, so, so they get to the point where they don't need an editor and they just write for themselves. Right. But like, 
A, it's self-reflection, and B, it's just being taught writing skills. Right? That's, I took a bunch of creative writing classes in college, too. Um, and so th that's got to help, right? Um, but there's skills that can be taught, especially the Cliff Notes versions of them. Um, and I believe that'll help people in all aspects of what they do. I mean, a sales rep who can write really well. Uh, I remember the, the AE team in Venera would line up with laptops by my desk. They'd have emails they drafted that were like closing negotiation emails. And I would just sit there and workshop and edit them. That was like a third of my job. Yeah. Uh, it was just editing those emails so that they were punchy. They had emotional impact. They had, and again, it would be like, I would hook people. I would, I would space line breaks for key ideas. I would help them improve readability. I would cut out stuff. It was like I was in poetry class and they'd be like, tighten this. What does that mean? I don't get this. Expand on that. Same thing, right? Um, if we, who, knew, who knew that the role of the sales leader would slowly morph into that of an English teacher? Right? No shit, <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what, what, give us one thing that you want our listeners and in your audience to kind of take away, you know, from you. What is, what is like the one thing that you're most passionate about, about spreading the word about and, and talking about and, and teaching other people about? If they got nothing else out of this time with you, what would you hope that they got? Um, I would say that, uh, Things have changed a lot in, in five years. Um, and I think that a lot of the models that people see are, as you've alluded to, um, we need to ask ourselves, who's giving the advice? There's so much advice out there now. Um, and the same advice can be good and bad for different people. Um, so when you're receiving advice, when you're looking for, for knowledge, ask yourself, to whom is that person speaking? Are they speaking to people like me? Am I their intended audience? Should I take that advice? And to simply question a lot of it, not digit, I'm not saying, you know, everything mainstream is bad. That's not true. A lot of things that common knowledge is often good. Um, but do question whether it's intended for you um, and, and try to seek out personal, personalized advice more than, than generic advice. Um, you, a conversation today with Aaron Ross is very different than reading Predictable Revenue V1, right? Um, and everyone is pretty revenue dead. I don't know. The guy's brain is still alive. He's thinking it, it, the book is static, right? The same goes with reading LinkedIn advice. I, I don't talk about how to close fortune 100 deals because I haven't done it. If you read my advice on closing deals, know that it's from my perspective and my perspective alone. I can try to step into another one, but the same goes for anyone else. If you're coming to, if, you, if your, your CEO is coming to your VP of sales, I had lunch with my CEO friend and they've said we should do this and you're just changing everything because if someone's advice that's not relevant, you have to put it in your context. Reflect, question, uh, be a bit of the philosopher, if you will. Um, and remember that it's okay to slow down sometimes um, and thinking about things for just a bit before you make sweeping changes. Um, especially when you just learn something you want to put into action in an hour, take a bit to pause. What, what give us, I know we got one more question after this, but think back for a second about your favorite philosophers. What's one of your favorite philosophers quotes that's most relevant to sales. And you don't, you won't get an hour to think about it. You got to think in like 10 seconds. You can't philosophize too much. You just got done telling everybody to take time and now we're speeding them up. Totally. Priority. <laughs> that's what sales is. I don't need to think about it at all. Um, 
Friedrich Nietzsche said, forgetting is a robust form of health. That's a great quote. A the, very applicable quote for salespeople, right? Say it one more time for everyone in the back. Forgetting is a robust form of health. That's great. That's Move great. on. When bad things happen, don't dwell. Don't blame anybody. Don't blame your prospect. Don't blame your manager. Don't blame anybody. Forget, be healthy, and simply move. Create abundance. Your, your territory sucks. Create more pipeline. Outbound's not working. Learn to write. Forget. Forget and be healthy. That's great. That's genius, dude. That's fantastic. So, how, can so we, uh, how can we support you, man? How can we, how can we you know, continue to be a friend, an ally, and resource for you? Is there anything that, that you need help on? Yeah, what are you struggling with that we could help you with? Uh, tons. Um, <laughs> I am turning 30 in a few months. Uh, I am young, inexperienced, and still kind of a dick. Um, so I have a lot to learn. Um, and there's so many smart people who do really cool things. Um, so I most want to hear about the cool techniques you're using that are working. Um, when you discover something new, I, I would love a note about it. This goes for anyone listening and right here. Um, and, you know, to, to call me on my ideas, if they're good or bad, follow me on LinkedIn and, and tell me if they, um, if what I'm saying is helpful, unhelpful. Um, if I'm missing anything, um, I want to learn and help other people learn if I can um, and just stay humble, try to keep the beginner's mind as long as I can feasibly have it. Um, and help me never forget what my VP at my first job said of you're doing well, but you know, remember it's about everyone else too and teach others. And so um, I'm trying to give back, but also learn as much as I can in the process. Yeah. I think <clears throat> I speak for Richard as well. I think we're both in that same boat. You know, I think it's something that oh, we we're both need. about to turn 30. Yeah. We're that's both right. turning 30. I'm about sure. to turn 30. I didn't mean that boat. We're in a different, different age bracket, but, but uh, you know, a whole new census this year, Scott. We, we, you get to pick a whole new box this year, Scott. Oh God! Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah. Well, look, enjoy the conversation, Alex. I'll definitely take take you up, and you know, always be a resource for you if I can ever be be helpful. And I'll pay attention to your posts like I do, and, and try to chime in whether I agree or disagree one way or the other, man. So thanks for spending some time with us, and. Uh, Good luck to Revenues N and you and, and your team. Thank you. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Alex. Great having you. Good catching up with you, man. Bye-bye.